This morning we're going to be moving through the text in two uh, portions, so just know this is a sermon in two parts. We're going to hit the middle, we're going to worship together, and then we're going to come back in. And so the, I think the first time we did this, uh, two or three people were like, man, that is the greatest sermon I've ever heard. We can, we can beat even the workers to lunch. And so just know that we're going to move this in two parts. And so we're in Revelation 1 today, in verses 9 through 20. Now, if you are just coming today, you weren't here last Sunday, then you missed the first part of this conversation. So let me quickly just catch you up, invite you into the conversation that was started last week. Last week, we began to answer the question of who then is Jesus? And it really centers on something that, that I observe a lot in our culture. See, in our culture, we observe that Jesus takes on different, different personalities, and people pick different things they like about Jesus, different things they don't like about Jesus. And, and for the most part, those who are raised in the church, we see these things and we say, no, like, I don't believe that. I don't believe that Jesus is just about life enhancement. I don't believe that Jesus is just about giving me a good moral pattern for whereby to lead my life and to follow him. I don't, I don't believe these things. But, but listen to this. It's a lot like a marital relationship. When a man looks for a woman to get married to, he's looking, he's saying, where is a stone-cold fox that will have me just as I am? This is kind of the inner dialogue. And then he finds somebody much better looking than he is. At least that's, that's what was true for my case. And he finds somebody and, and, and he, he hangs out in a dimly lit room, lit room so she can't see him very well. And he dupes her into believing that he can be something that she imagines in her mind. Right? And in his mind, he has all these things. He says, oh, I love this about her. This, given 25 years or so, I can fix, I can change. And in her mind, she says, Bubba, you have no idea all the things I need to fix in your life to make you good for me. Right? And so we see that in in some ways in our marital relationships. We see this in our friendships. And for whatever reason, this begins to kind of make its way incrementally, quietly, imperceptibly into our faith relationship with Jesus Christ. So it's not an immediate thing. But it's something that over a while we begin to recognize that who we see Jesus as has become chipped away and molded, not by what the Word says, but by what we observe in culture. Because we find a culturally acceptable, uh, readily acceptable and understood and propagated vision of who Jesus is, and we live in culture. And so we find this vision of who Jesus is coming in contrast, into contradiction with our own, and over time it begins to change to shape and to malform our vision of who Jesus is. We recognize that the question of who Jesus is is so incredibly important for the Christian and for the non-Christian. For the Christian, you've staked your hope, you've staked your future on who Jesus is. And for the non-Christian, whether you recognize it or not, all of eternity hangs in the balance of how you answer the question of who then is Jesus. So within the life of the church, it becomes important occasionally to have this laser-like focus and to renew this vision of who Jesus is. And this is what we see in Revelation. John gives us a vision of Jesus that is very different from what we normally encounter. John gives us a vision of Jesus that is incredibly instructive for us today. So let's read through this together. Our first movement will be verses 9 through 16, and then we'll come back and we'll hit verses 17 through 20. John gives us a little bit of background here in verses 9 through 11. Look what he says. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. 
I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So John is giving us a little bit of background. This is John the Apostle. He was a follower of Jesus. And here we find him on the Isle of Patmos. It's in the Aegean Sea, roughly 6 by 10 miles in size. And look what he says. He says, this identification, he says, I, John, your brother... John writes to a group of people who are likely experiencing tremendous persecution at the hand of the Roman Empire, and he finds this point of commonality with them. You see, for the Christian, we're able to find commonality with any other brother and sister in faith because as Romans 8.15 says, we have been adopted as sons. And so as Christians, we're all a part of this family. And we recognize sometimes family becomes dysfunctional. Amen? Amen. Amen. Sometimes family becomes dysfunctional. But family always sticks together. And so John writes to this family who some of them are experiencing dysfunction. And he writes to them, he says, look, I'm your brother and your partner in the tribulation. He's helping them to find commonality with him. He says, this is our life. This is the life God has called us to live. Allow me to offer this encouragement to you that you might be encouraged by what the word says. Your brother and partner in the tribulation. Look at what he says next. He says, And the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Last week when we were in verse 6, we recognized that, that God has made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So John is, is cluing them back in. He says, you need a kingdom focus. You need a kingdom ethic. You need to understand that God has made us a kingdom. We have only one king, and that king is Jesus. Our king is Jesus. If you're a Christian and you sit here today, you're king, the only one that deserves all of your loyalty, all of your respect, all of your adoration, and all honor rendered to his name is Jesus. And so he's there, and what we see is John on this aisle. He's been exiled, and the word tells us that it's on account of the word of God. John was going around, and he was telling everybody about Jesus, and the empire didn't care for it. John was going around and he was engaging people and telling them how they might come to know a one and true king. The Roman Empire got wind of it and they sent John to exile on the Isle of Patmos, the isle that was most recognized for being this kind of mining scene for the Roman Empire, providing the stone that Rome would use to build its empire. So this is where we see John. Sunday rolls around and he's in the spirit. He's, he's given this prophetic vision. And listen to what the vision says. Verse 11. Right what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. John wrote to these seven ancient churches that exist in modern-day Turkey. And so he writes, and, and the layout of these is this trade route or this messenger route where the messenger is supposed to take the message and kind of work their way down to each one of these seven cities. These are not the only cities that got this message. We recognize that even as we sit here today... And the message John gives us in, in the book of Jesus' revelation finds application in every church in every time. And so what is this message? Look at this, verse 12. John does what you or I might do. He says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. John's in the spirit. He hears the commander right, and what does he do? He turns around to see where the voice is coming from. So imagine in your mind, John is sitting on this island, he turns and he sees, and what he sees is a vision. He says, on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. So John is instantly giving us this image of, of the temple, and the temple is being lit by these seven 
lampstands. In, in verse 20, we find out that these seven lampstands are the seven churches that he lists out. And so if you look at verse 20, it says, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And in the midst of these, verse 13, look what we find. In the midst of these lampstands, one like a son of man. When you read through the Gospels, you recognize that Jesus is one of his favorite names for himself was the Son of Man. He said the Son of Man came to serve and not to be served. And so this is the image that we're given here. We have these seven lampstands in the middle of the temple and we see Jesus around them. And so our minds begin to ask the question logically, what is Jesus doing in the middle of these lampstands? What is Jesus doing there? Look how he's clothed. He says he's clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now, the the clothing that John describes is incredibly instructive for us in determining what role Jesus is serving there. Now, if we're to go out into the community and you're to see me dressed on a normal Sunday, you probably wouldn't have any idea what I did for a living. I'm not wearing the robe. I don't have the little white collar. If I'm wearing that, you say, ah, priest, I get it. If I wear scrubs, you say he's either doctor, nurse, hygienist, or maybe he just likes to dress comfortably. If I'm wearing a suit with uh, shiny shoes and, and a tie and maybe some bold colors, you say he's either a banker, lawyer, or a televangelist. And so sometimes, sometimes the way we dress is an indication of what we do, but not always. But what we see here is John is giving us an incredible clue as to what Jesus is doing. Jesus has on the express garb, the clothing, the uniform, effectively, of a priest. In the midst of this temple, Jesus is serving the role of a priest. He's dressed in that fashion. He is, he is giving us the understanding, the indication that he is serving the role of the priest. And as a priest, Jesus is in there, and he is tending to the churches. Jesus is absolutely invest with the local, invested in the local church. Jesus is there ministering to these lamps that are standing in place, giving us a metaphor of what the local church is. And so the local church rises and falls on its fidelity to Jesus and Jesus' ministry inside the local church. Amen? So Jesus is there and he is ministering to the local church. Now look how he describes him. He says, The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. John begins to describe Jesus in a way that if you've read through the Bible recently, is maybe running back through your head. Flip over to Daniel 7. Flip over to Daniel 7. Within Daniel 7, Daniel lays out for us this vision he has of the ancient of days. God, effectively. And the interesting thing that John is doing is he is, draw, he is dressing Jesus or seeing Jesus in the exact same way that God is described in Daniel 7. Daniel 7, verses 9 through 11, he says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. And look how his clothing is described. It is white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand, a thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. A court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And so we see these competing almost, but really complementary visions and understandings of who Jesus is. He is a priest ministering to the church. And he is a judge sitting and bringing court. Jesus there with his hair 
white like snow, meant to give us the impression of his purity, meant to give us an impression of his immortality. Absolutely unaging, absolutely pure, Jesus stands judging the church. Look what he goes on to say, the end of verse 14. It says, his eyes were like a flame of fire. So we see this interesting description of Jesus. He's standing there, he's dressed as a priest, surrounded by lampstands. He has the white hair, and now we see his eyes, and it's this image of a flame of fire. John is giving us the impression that Jesus is not encumbered by darkness. Jesus is not in any way, his abilities aren't in any way inhibited by by darkness. What does a flame do? A flame gives light. If you walk into a dark room within the first century, you don't walk over and flip on your decorator switch. You don't walk in and and look for the motion thing to turn the lights on. You walk in with a lamp if you want to have light. The light for Jesus is within his eyes. Imagine a judge who, when you go in to testify in his court, knows everything that you're going to say. He knows all the details of your case and even what you say to be true and what you say to be false. And so you stand before this judge and you begin to tell the story and you begin to create a story, perhaps. You're creating a narrative that paints you in a much more positive light than you deserve. And the judge looks at you, arrestingly, haltingly, says, stop. I know the truth. The way you dress, the web you spin, isn't fooling anyone, least of all me. This incredible picture of Jesus we see here. This priest in the middle of bringing judgment looks to your heart. He looks to my heart. All the hidden sin, all the ways we try and dress ourselves up, all the ways we try and make ourselves look better, sound better, or appear better to those who see us, they aren't fooling Jesus. His eyes a flame of fire peering to the very core, the existence of who we are. All of our doubts, all of our misgivings, and all of our sins. This is the degree to which he knows us. It's terrifying. To stand before one so pure, to stand before one so omniscient, so all-knowing, that he sees the very core of who we are. Those things our wife doesn't know, those things our husbands don't know, those things our children don't know, those things, praise God, our parents don't know. He knows them all. He knows them all. Hair of white like snow, eyes like a flame. Look what he describes next. He said, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. John here in verse 15 gives us the picture, the impression of stability. This Jesus is not moved, he is not swayed, he is unchanging. No matter what shifting perception of, that we see Jesus as, or way that we might articulate him, that differs from his word, this vision of Jesus is enduring and unchanging and everlasting. His feet are solidly steadfast. And look what he says in here. Not only are they steadfast, but we see that they're also refined in a furnace. Again, driving back at this idea that Jesus is wholly pure. There is no falsehood in him. There is no deceit. There is no sin. There is no darkness. He is 100% pure. John turns from his feet and begins to describe his voice. He says, his voice was like the roar of many waters. 
John, striving for the loudest sound that he could describe, turned within his culture and he imagined a place where a number of rivers would come together. And so this this cacophonous sound is is rising up, overpowering anything. You can't hear yourself talk around it. You can scarcely hear yourself think around it. And this was the sound that John chose to describe the voice of Jesus. He said the voice of Jesus brings everything else to a halt. The voice of Jesus brings everything else to a standstill. The voice of Jesus overcomes everything else. And the voice of Jesus is loudly and clearly heard even in the midst of difficulties of life. He says, it is like the roar of many waters. Now look what he describes next. He says, in his right hand, he held seven stars. Again, we turn to verse 20 and it says that the seven stars, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. You say, well, this is odd. What's Jesus doing holding angels in his hand? And so we recognize that within the Greek, the word angelos, which is the word for angel, could mean messenger or it could mean angel. Well, look at each one of the seven letters that John wrote to each of the seven churches, starting in chapters 2 and chapter 3. He starts in verse 1, he says, To the angel in the church in Ephesus. Verse 12, he says, And to the angel in the church in Pergamum. Chapter 3, he says, And to the angel in the church in Sardis. And so we get the impression, we get the understanding that he's not talking about angelic beings, but he's talking about the pastors of these local churches. So we see Jesus there. Dressed in white, white hair, eyes of flame of fire, unmoving feet. We see him in the midst of this place. And all the churches need Jesus to be sustained. And all the pastors are held in the hand of Jesus. And he is upholding them. And he is keeping them safe, keeping them secure. Jesus is intimately, appropriately invested in the life and vitality of the local church. He says he's got these stars in his, in his hands. And look what comes out of his mouth. It says, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. You know, this is a grotesque image. If you were to commit this to canvas, it becomes a grotesque image. You see, this isn't a small dagger held by the side, but this is a broadsword, occasionally the full height of a grown man. And so from Jesus' mouth becomes this weapon wielded by a king, Jesus describes this weapon in chapter 2 and verse 16. He says, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with what? With the sword of my mouth. Hebrews chapter 4 gives us another picture of this sword in its ability. Hebrews 4 chapter 12 says, For the word of God is is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. It's able to slice us asunder. And look what it says. Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word to us is his Bible. God's word to us is his Bible. And his word in the hands of Jesus gets directly applied to our hearts, brings us into reflection of the mirror of his word and the mirror of our life. And when we look at our lives along the mirror of his word, we recognize that we absolutely don't measure up. We're not perfect. I haven't been counting the number of times I've sinned today, but I can tell you there are more than one and less than a hundred. Jesus comes in, he applies his word to our hearts. 
He applies his word to our hearts and we recognize that he is calling us to understand who he is. And we understand him through his word. He knows our hearts, he sees them through his eyes. He brings his word perfectly in to wound our pride. To cut out the sin in our life. He applies his sword with such incredible precision that he goes after the tailor-made sin in your heart that's keeping you from him. And he seeks to excise it. He He seeks to remove it. He's calling you to let go of that sin. He's calling you to allow him to do his kingly work to remove that sin from your heart. Look how he describes him last. He says, in his face... It was like the sun shining in its full strength. Texans need no explanation for what the sun feels like in its full strength. In the middle of August, you go out, and what do you do? You don't play outside. You cook while you're playing outside. This is kind of what it is. Without any cloud cover, you can feel your skin crackle. If you put bacon on your shoulders and go out without a shirt on, in 30 minutes, you can eat that. I wouldn't, but you could. That's nasty. Don't do that. What an awful image. The sun in its full strength exposes everything. When Moses met with God, he came down on top of the mountain. The Israelites asked Moses to wear a veil because they could not stand to be in his presence and see the afterglow of God on Moses' face. What John's talking about here is John sees God for who he is in the face of Jesus. John sees his face and he says it's the brightest thing you can imagine. None of us are able to continue to look at the sun without going blind. None is able to behold God in all of his glory. John looks at the face of Jesus and he says his face shone with all of the glory and all of the splendor of God. Let's turn our hearts to meditating on this truth as we give ourselves once again to the singing of song and the worship of our Lord Jesus.
and the old rugged cross. Jesus Christ died on that. It doesn't matter what you believe, just go read history. It's a historical fact. So the question that we have to ask is, what will we do with this man of misery? Six hours on a piece of wood, yet somehow it completely changed history. But see, we pimped Jesus out. We made his sacrifice foolery. Like, oh, I'll just go to church on Easter and make the cross a nice piece of jewelry. The cross, though, it wasn't a symbol of faith. It was a symbol of death. Imagine if somebody walked in with an electric chair hanging around their neck. I mean, the question we really have to ask is, what was different about the man on that day? That he could take something that kills and turn it into something that saves. See, he was unique because he was innocent. God became a man. Now that's something different. And on that cross, he says, I'm not dying because of me. I'm dying because of you. Not just for the sins that you have done, but for the ones that you will do. And on the cross, God treated Jesus just like he was us. He poured out the wrath on the Son so that he might show that he is just. Christ took our filth, and Christ took our sin. The beauty is, when we trust in Jesus, we're included in him. But first, walk with me what it must have been like on that night when the Son of God looked like he had lost his fight. No heartbeat, no breathing, and no sign of life. Jesus tasted death, yet it didn't seem right. Have you ever let that sink in, that Jesus died? No, really, I mean, Jesus actually died. Three days he laid in the tomb, lifeless laid his remains. Like the Son of God had given up his crown, like the King had given up his reign. But all of a sudden, Sunday came, and that's when something started to change. And from the grave, we heard a thump, and blood started pumping in his veins. Heart beating, blood pulsing, and instantly Satan felt his power break because the Son of God was dead. But now, the Son of God is awake, and every breath he took was like a punch to Satan's face, showing that we are not under our sin, but now we're under God's grace. So church, rejoice with me, because when he went to the grave, you did too. And when he rose from the grave, your life became new. He says, my job is finished, so let your new life begin. You can actually have freedom. Stop wallowing in your sin. See, the chains have been broken and the stone has been rolled away. And God doesn't love a future you. He actually loves you today. So you're clean and you're spotless. The curse has been squashed. And that's what baptism is. It's just showing you've been washed. So rejoice with me because we are not awaiting the verdict. He's already said not guilty and his resurrection proves that he assured it. Because our whole life we've been feasting on sin and we couldn't even pay the tab. Yet Jesus walked over to our bill and he said, yo, I'll take care of that. 
So stop trying to pay your own debt because God doesn't even expect it. Because the cross shows payment given and the resurrection shows payment accepted. And instantly, we were perfectly spotless when we were once spiritually poor. Because when he walked out of the grave, he left our sin on the floor. And he turned around and he looked at where his body once laid. And he said, sin, that is where you're going to stay. So church, let's walk in freedom because you are free. The resurrection is a stamp saying it's a guarantee, a royal decree proclaiming that we are children of the king. And when your mouth can't, then let your life sing. We rejoice because death, death has lost its sting. Hallelujah. Victorious is the chorus that we sing. John sees this incredible, transforming, transformative picture of Jesus. He doesn't see Jesus, this, this, this guy that is kind of ingrained within our minds, who wandered around for two or three years, found, him side on the, found himself on the wrong side of the Roman government, on the wrong side of the ruling Jews, and just happened to be hung upon a cross. We don't see this picture of Jesus where he is, is beaten, he is battered, and he is bruised. We see this picture of Jesus where he is ruling. We see this picture of Jesus where he is restored. We see this picture of Jesus where he's not, he's not weakened, but he's overcome with incredible strength. We see the picture of Jesus in the book of Revelation as he currently is. 
And it's incredibly powerful. And what we see in John's reaction is the only appropriate reaction to what happens when we truly see who Jesus is. John sees Jesus. And he falls down. Look at verse 17. It says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. John sees Jesus, he sees the glory of God on the face of Jesus, and he falls down and presumes himself to be dead. The way this is written, the way that we understand this, effectively, John's laying there, and it's not that he's waiting for Jesus to say, it's okay, bro, stand up. John expects that he should be dead because he is seeing the glory of God on the face of Jesus. John has encountered Jesus. John has encountered God, and he recognizes that he should be laid waste as a result of it. See, John doesn't see some culturally adaptive and and accommodational Jesus whereby he just wants your life to be better and for you to have a good marriage. John sees Jesus as he really is and beckons us, asks us to see the same thing. You see, because when we really see Jesus for who he is, there is only one and one response that we can ever have that's appropriate, and that's to fall down in utter and complete surrender and worship to our one and true king. John falls down at the feet of Jesus. He presumes that he's dead. Jesus has been shown to be priest. Jesus has been shown to be this incredibly omniscient judge who looks at the very heart of him and looks at us like he would look at us and say, adulterer, pornographer, idolater. He looks at our hearts. He knows our inward sin. And knowing our inward sin, knowing our inward shame, knowing our doubts and our disbeliefs, knowing those things we struggle with that we're not even able to articulate because it's so terrifying to say those things out loud, he looks at us laying on the floor. And just as he did with John, he goes over in the same hand that once held the seven stars aloft, reaches down and touches him. This omniscient creator, all-powerful, has complete and utter majesty all within him, goes over and does something so incredibly comforting, so incredibly loving, so incredibly merciful. He takes his all-powerful hand and he puts it on John. And what does he say to him? Verse 17, following in. He says, he laid his right hand on me and said, fear not. Today, as you sit, God sees everything about you. He knows everything about you. He sees everything in your heart. He sees your hopes. He sees your dreams. He sees your sorrows. He sees your heartaches. Some of us internally, we are shaking with fear. We are overcome. We are burdened. And the word God would give to you today is to fear not. See, He doesn't come to John and say, Look, quit being afraid. There's no reason to be afraid. He comes in and recognizes that John is very much afraid. And in the middle of that, he tells him there is no reason to be afraid. Fear not. Let fear and striving cease. Let turmoil cease. Let your tears cease. And he calls him to enjoy newness of life. Just as he's calling us to enjoy newness of life, he goes over to him. This omniscient, all-powerful God goes over to him. He lays his right hand on him and says, fear not. The degree to which somebody's able to comfort you lies in direct proportion with kind of who they are. 
If you ever see a kid get hurt on the playground that is not your child and you go over to some random stranger's kid and say, it's okay, little boy, what happens? Like terror. Their parents have spent the last eight to ten years pouring into them stranger danger and all you're doing is heightening their sense of terror. And so when we go over to them and say, how are you going? You know, we're trying to be goofy or silly. They think we're trying to eat them. Like this is a real fear in them. Don't do that. And so what we recognize, though, when Jesus comes over and he lays his hand on John, his ability to speak into John's life and say, fear not, is far different than it would be for any of us. You see, because he's the God that created John. He's the God that's allowing him to, be perse- to persevere on this Isle of Patmos. He's the God that poured out instructions for three years while John followed him. He's the the God that hung on the cross, that John shed tears and watched him. And he's the God that emerged from the grave victorious. And ultimately, he's the God that ascended and sits at the right hand of God forevermore until he comes reigning in judgment. So he's all-powerful. But he's also all-personal. So he comes over to John. Lays his hand on him, he says, fear not. But look at what he bases it on. He bases it not on their three years of ministry. He bases it not on those things John has seen, but he bases it upon who he is. He says, fear not, for I am the first and the last. If you look back at verse 8 in chapter 1, God speaking, God the Father said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Lord Almighty. And so he describes himself in terms of merisms, of, of logical opposites. Alpha being the first letter of the Greek alphabet, omega being the last letter of the Greek alphabet. And so he says, in fact, I am the first and the last. And here we see Jesus quoting the same thing and saying, I am the first and the last. He was always there, and he always will be. And so his ability to tell John to fear not is hinges on who he is. Look what he says. I'm the first and the last, pointing at his eternality. And then he says, and the living one. The living one. He describes describes it in terms of the present. He says, I currently live. And then he asks John to reflect back upon the crucifixion. He says, I die. Jesus' ability to speak to John, to speak to you, to speak to me, and to tell us to stop striving, to stop being afraid, to fully... Uh, surrender ourselves to him, centers on the fact of his crucifixion. I die. And so he brings back to mind this crucifixion that Christ willingly surrendered his life for your sin and for mine. See, it's easy for us to think of sin in terms of some kind of loose, ubiquitous stain or mark. Oh, you know, my sister-in-law, she's got sin in her life. My mother-in-law, oh, friend, don't even get me started. What a mess. What a mess. Okay, let me get it started. Let me just tell you. You see, sin in this concept, in this idea, is something that's very comfortable for us to talk about. But sin in our own lives, our own personal sin, our own personal stains, our own personal marks, our own personal things for which God died, these are things that are quite difficult for us to think about. So we think about our pride, we think about our doubt, we think about our sorrows. Some of us, we think about our anger. We think about the sense of injustice for things that we would have done differently. And we recognize that God is not pleased with these things, but for us to articulate them out loud sounds like it's opposed to God. It sounds like we're we're accusing God of something. 
And so in the midst of these things, we just shut them all up. We hold them all in and say, it doesn't matter. I don't need to say them out loud. It's okay. But we feel the separation. We feel this angst. On the cross of Calvary, Jesus took upon himself the wages of your sin and my sin. On the cross of Calvary, Jesus poured out his blood for my pride, for your idolatry, for the hidden, quiet, secret sins of your heart. And he did so willingly. He did so lovingly. And in doing that, in doing that, in taking on this penalty of sin, he enabled you to be free. He says, I died. An all-powerful God wrapped himself in flesh and allowed himself to be put to death by the hand of his creation so that he might communicate to you his great love for you and he might bring you back to himself having this, the, this penalty of sin forever paid for. Forever paid for. God isn't waiting for you to be perfect. He's waiting for you to admit that you're not. You see the difference there. God's not waiting for you to be perfect, to get all of your stuff in order so that somebody might sign off and say, okay, John's not great, but he's pretty daggum close. He's waiting for you to admit that you could never be. Humbly, willingly, surrendered himself on the cross for you. And he calls for you to recognize that you may never be perfect, but he already was. You could never pay for your sins, but he already did. He died. Look what he goes on to say. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Jesus already died for you. Quit killing yourself inside. Jesus already died for you. He says, behold, I am alive forevermore. He stands at the right hand of the Father, always making intercession for his saints. He stands always beckoning you to come. He stands always always asking you to lay your sins down and to come before him. He stands always asking you to submit yourself to him that you might come and be healed. And look what he says. I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. There is nothing and no one in this life that can ever set you free outside of Jesus. There's a lot of things in life that will promise they can set you free. There are people that tell you that marriage can set you free, that if you just find the right spouse. There are people that tell you money can set you free if you just make enough. There are people that tell you a job can set you free if you just have the right one. That this, this court case or, or this thing over here can set you free. If it just all works out, freedom is illusory outside of Jesus. Freedom is illusory. It's something that you may never achieve outside of the person of Jesus and his sacrifice personally for you. He says, behold, I hold the keys for death and Hades. Jesus holds the keys to set you free. This is why the question of who Jesus is is so incredibly important to us. It's something we all have to answer. See, if you seek to say, well, it's just one of those things I want to think about for a little while. I want to not answer, friend, that you are answering that Jesus is not the life-saving gift that God has given for you for your redemption. And you stand with eternity and the consequence. And the Bible has two places where people will spend all eternity. For all those who see Jesus as John has laid out, for all those who cast their sins upon Jesus and and confess their sins before him, turn away from them and turn to Jesus and say, Lord, save me. I'm not perfect, but I see that you are. For all those people, they get to spend eternity 
in heaven with God. Experiencing the love of God for all time and time on into infinity. But you recognize that God will not force himself on you. For all those who look at Jesus and say, look, I'm just not really sure, I'm not really convinced. For this reason or for that reason, I, I, I choose to not submit myself to you for all those people. He said, okay, this is how you're answering who Jesus is. And for all those people, you too will live a life into eternity. But life in eternity for you will not be lived in the presence of God enjoying his love. Life for you will be lived outside the realm of God's love. And the Bible refers to that place as hell. You see, the question of who Jesus is is so incredibly important. A loving God places before you today an option. A loving God places before you today a choice. A loving God places before you today a call to come and to worship the one and true king, Jesus. The first, the last, the living one. He says, behold, I die, but I'm alive forevermore. And he bids you, come. This is why he wrote to John and he says, write those things you see, those things that are, and those things that will be, so that we might be here today and to hear the life-saving message of Jesus Christ and so that we might submit ourselves to him. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that you might continue to move in our hearts. That we might surrender ourselves, submit ourselves to you in all things. And Father, I pray especially for those who are struggling over the decision of whether or not to submit themselves to you. That you would convict them of their sin. That you would lead them in righteousness. That you would win them by your great love for them. That your Holy Spirit might move in their hearts. And Father, I too pray for the Christian here today struggling with who you are and and, and their life before you. I pray that you would help them to see that you are most pleased with them because of the sacrifice of Jesus, that they are most loved by you because of the sacrifice of Jesus, and that you too, you bid them come to return to intimate fellowship with you, that they might once again feel restoration, that they might once again feel healing and be not far off because of the sin in their life. And Father, I pray that you would unite our hearts together as we worship you in song. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.